Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. We'll focus on uh, verse 19 of Matthew 16, though we will read uh, verses 13 through 20. Then we'll read verses 15 through 20 of chapter 18, uh, starting first with Matthew 16 and verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You can turn over to chapter 18, where we read beginning at verse 15. This, you recall, is um, just after the parable of the lost sheep, where uh, Christ, the good shepherd, speaks of uh, lovingly going after the lost sheep. And now, in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we'll read those in connection with Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is on pages 886 and 887 in the back of your hymnals, where we'll read um, questions 83 through 85 together responsively, beginning with question 83, where it asks, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance, both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does the preaching of the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. 
The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened? By Christian discipline. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Regation, uh, surely some of you can recall a time where you started a job and you were given by your employer a set of keys, uh, maybe keys to a car or a building, maybe keys to a vault. That key gave you power. It gave you a sense of, of responsibility. As your boss handed you the keys, you possessed power to open and power to close. With the entrusting of the keys came power and responsibility. And something similar happens in the church where Christ, the, the head of the church, entrusts to ministers and elders the keys of the kingdom by which they might open and close the kingdom of heaven. As we just recited a moment ago, to declare the way of entry into Christ's kingdom and also to declare to whom the way into the kingdom is shut. A tremendous power and responsibility. That Christ, not our employer, but our head and our king, would entrust to his church the keys of the kingdom. The power to bind on earth what shall be bound in heaven and to loose on earth what shall be loosed in heaven. These are things that require a, a great deal of explanation, of, of explanation lest we misunderstand them. So this afternoon, as we consider Matthew chapter 16 together with Matthew 18, I want to think about three questions. Um, first, what it means that Christ entrusts the keys of the kingdom to the officers of his church. Second, uh, what it means and, and what it looks like to use those keys to close the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, what it means and what it looks like to use those keys to open the kingdom of heaven. I think it would be first about what Christ means by the, the keys of the kingdom. What are these keys that Jesus entrusts to his church. It seems in Matthew 16, when Jesus speaks of those keys, that he's actually alluding back to an Old Testament oracle from Isaiah chapter 22. And you can turn there 
If you'd like, Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 15, uh, down through through verse 19, there it speaks of a man named Shebna. Um, Shebna was one of the the senior officials in God's house, and it it says that he would be uh, hurled away and thrust from his office while another man, Eliakim, would be clothed with his robe, verse 21, and bound with his sash. And it says that Shebna's authority would be committed to him, to Eliakim. And God says then, I I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim, the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he will shut, and none shall open. You can hear the, the similarities between Isaiah 22 and Matthew 16. Both of them speak of a, of a key being given. Both of them speak of that key having power to open and also power to shut. Seems fairly evident that Christ in Matthew 16 is deliberately picking up on this oracle from Isaiah 22. And yet it's interesting, in that oracle, there are several indicators that Eliakim is to be understood as a, a priestly sort of figure. He's portrayed as wearing garments like a tunic and a sash that are elsewhere associated with the high priest. He's given authority over the vessels in God's house. I think that's a reference to the vessels of the temple. He's given keys that elsewhere in the Old Testament are entrusted to the priests. First Chronicles 9 says that they are given the key of the temple. And so Jewish interpreters, for good reason, understood Isaiah 22 to be referring to Eliakim as a, a kind of priestly figure in God's house. And what Matthew 16 teaches is that God in Christ is going to build a new house. Remember, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as Christ, the the son of David, builds this new house, this new temple, entrusts his keys to Peter and the apostles that they might do what Eliakim or the priests would do in the Old Testament open up access into God's presence, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins that access might be granted. And yet also proclaiming the judgment of God upon unrepentant sinners. Christ is entrusting that same kind of authority to his apostles. Taking the keys of God's house away from Israel's leaders and, and transferring them to the new leaders that Christ appoints in his new temple the church. Because Israel's faithless leaders were locking men out of heaven by steering them away from Jesus, he, he takes the keys of the kingdom and gives them to the twelve that they might proclaim him as the Christ and in so doing open the gates of heaven. It is in the proclamation of Peter's confession in verse 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is in the proclamation of that confession that the gates of heaven are opened. And entrance into God's kingdom is granted. What Christ is doing is, is he's entrusting his apostles with the means by which that opening might take place, the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Zwingli said that the opening of the kingdom of heaven by use of the keys is nothing else than this, the preaching of the pure, unfalsified word of the gospel. 
Whoever believes it will be free of his sins and saved. Whoever does not will be damned. The proclamation of the gospel opens the kingdom of heaven to those who believe. Yet to those who don't, Christ grants the church authority to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven to them is closed. See, the idea in in Matthew 16 is not, as some have pictured it, that that Peter and the apostles are given authority to... um, uh, the, the idea isn't as Jesus gives Peter and the apostles authority to open the way into heaven. The, the idea is not, as some have pictured it, that, that Peter is sort of standing up in heaven on the, the way into the gates with, with these keys around his waist, either uh, letting people in or, or refusing them entry. The idea is not that we're to picture this going on in, in heaven, but the idea is that here on earth, Peter and the twelve are to preach the gospel. And as that gospel is proclaimed and received here on earth, the gates of heaven are opened. But those who refuse this gospel here on earth are judged, and to them the door is shut. The proclamation of the gospel and of the judgment of God upon those who reject it is an earthly dramatization of heaven's verdict. You see how in question 84 there, it it speaks of, of... the, the association between what is proclaimed here on earth and what also is, is proclaimed in heaven. The proclamation of the gates of heaven being opened to those who receive the gospel and yet also the declaration that it's closed to those who reject it in that is an earthly dramatization of heaven's verdict. Christ is here granting the church authority to enact this heavenly drama even though he is the only one who holds the keys of the kingdom by his own right, and and he's the only one, therefore, who who can forgive sins and, and actually judge, he authorizes his disciples to declare these things according to his word. And while the apostles did so more perfectly than we do, this same authority is given to ministers and elders in Christ's church to proclaim according to Christ's command, as it says in question 83, that the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers, or to those who show themselves to be such by what they believe and how they live. This is the authority that the church is given according to the word of Christ. An authority that is not precisely the same as Christ, it's, it's a derived authority and therefore not infallible, But nevertheless, this is real authority. Uh, Michael Horton explains it um, this way, explains how how this differs from both the Roman Catholic misconception and also what he calls the the, uh, radical evangelical misunderstanding of this. The, The Roman Catholic Church sees the authority of Christ as identical with, with that of the church. There, there's a one-to-one overlap between what the church declares on earth and what Christ declares in heaven, which obviously we would disagree with, uh, recognizing that the church's authority is not infallible. But nevertheless, it is real authority, unlike the, the radical egalitarian evangelicalism that, that virtually ignores the authority of pastors and elders, shrugging them off as, as giving no more than an opinion that we can take or leave. You see how both of these are serious errors. 
And so we seek to avoid them both. Um, Horton says, Reformed ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, avoids the extremes of both the the legalism of Roman Catholicism and the antinomianism of, of radical evangelicalism. He says the actions of church officers are not necessarily identical to the action of Christ who may overrule his ambassadors on the last day. Nevertheless, they do carry his authority in the present so that those who are absolved or barred from the visible church through this ministry ought to regard themselves as included or barred from the kingdom of heaven. Which means for us at least three things. First of all, it means that we should not undervalue the authority that Christ has given his church. Typically, a person is is put under church discipline, and and the response is not so much like what we heard vowed this morning to to submit to the government and admonition of the church, but but typically it's, it's, you can't judge me, who are you? You don't know my heart. You, you, you might be able to remove me from the church, but it doesn't make a difference because I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. But Jesus says that personal relationship must be lived out of the context of the community that he's appointed under the oversight of those who give watch over your soul. So he says in Matthew 10.40 that those who receive his ambassadors receive him. The opposite also being true, that those who reject them, reject him. Because he has so bound himself to his ambassadors. He, in fact, exercises his authority through them. And and so we mustn't merely shrug off the admonitions of the elders. That's the first thing that this means for us. But but this also means something for the elders. It means that if, if God's people are are promising to submit to the government and admonitions of the elders, then elders need to make sure that what you are calling God's people to do is what God himself has said. R.B. Kuyper has said, for you to properly use the keys of the kingdom, it is absolutely essential that you neither subtract from nor add to God's requirements. The authority that you were exercising, question 84 and question 85, is according to the command of Christ, which means we must not bind consciences by laying down laws that God has not laid down, but, but your authority is ministerial and declarative. It ministers the word of God and declares what he himself has said. One pastor in a book on church membership, he talks about Uh, misuse of church power, abusing the power that Christ has given. And rightly, the the very first characteristic that he lists for abuse of church leadership is making dogmatic prescriptions in places where Scripture is silent. You must not do that, but let your authority be limited by the word of Christ and by the creedal formulations that we have agreed to submit to which summarize that word. Don't go beyond that. Don't take a a possible application from a principle in God's word and insist that that's the only way things can be done. That's not what we're called to do, but we minister the word of God and we declare what he himself has said. And when we do that, this is the third application, we can be sure that Christ himself stands with us in the exercise of that authority. 
When rightly used, the elders of Christ's church may trust that Christ is there with them in the exercise of ecclesiastical authority. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Where after he describes that that process of church discipline, which we'll look at in a moment, he, he then says, if two or three agree on earth, it will be done in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament requirement for two or three witnesses in judicial proceedings. And he's saying when things are done properly in this way, with with two or three witnesses, and a judgment is rendered either enacting church discipline or restoring the disciplined member, I want you to know that I'm with you. He's talking about his authority being attached to the pronouncement that is made. Jesus is not here in Matthew 18, 20, giving us a proof text for informal or or live stream gatherings where as long as two or three of us are there, it's a church service. That's not what he's talking about. But but he's reminding those to whom the keys of the kingdom are given that when those keys are rightly used, he is there with them in the exercise of their power. So let's look next then at the power of those keys to close the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He's talking about the closing of the kingdom to those who profess unchristian teachings and live unchristian lives. As question 85 says, that those who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways and and after being reported to those ordained by the church as elders who fail to respond to their loving admonitions, will be excluded from the Christian community and barred from the sacraments as a visible depiction of how God excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. The purpose of this is to make clear to them they're standing before God so that they might be restored. You notice how question 83 refers to Christian discipline as Christian discipline toward repentance, that the goal is not punitive, the goal is restorative. The purpose of this process is to make it clear to the person in question they're standing before God that they might be restored. In addition to that, it's also to make clear to the rest of the church the seriousness of their sin so that it might not spread so that people might not come to the conclusion, oh, well, if they're doing this and the church isn't doing anything about it, I guess I can do this. Or I guess I can do that too. The purpose of church discipline is to restore the sinner, to communicate to the rest of the church the seriousness of the sin so that it might not spread, to maintain a godly witness to the world around us, so that the world around us might not see, oh, so-and-so is, is living that way, and they're a member in good standing of that church. It's not a very good witness. And all of this also in obedience to Christ's command. That's, that's the reason why we do church discipline. The purpose of it, of, of this, this binding or, or shutting of the kingdom of heaven is the restoration of the sinner, the purity of the church, the witness of the church, and obedience to Christ's command. That's the purpose of church discipline, for the love of the sinner, for the love of the church, for the love of the world around us, and for the love of Christ, 
who commands this, who is himself the most loving person who ever lived. And so we dare not say that we will not do church discipline because we want to be loving and gracious. Church discipline is a loving and gracious command from the most loving and gracious person who ever lived. Flowing, as as we saw when I I pointed out the context of what we read, flowing out of, of the good shepherd's desire in Matthew 18, 10 to 14, that none of his little ones would perish. And so in love, we do what he commands. Professor Barry York says a church that claims it loves people too much to practice church discipline may sound merciful, but can we be more merciful and loving than God? A church without discipline is practicing false mercy and fake love. They fail to love the sinning brother by fully exhausting all the means that God has given for calling him to repentance. They fail to love the faithful members of the church by protecting them from sin and further judgments that God might bring on the congregation. They fail to love God himself by honoring his command to put out the rebellious person from their midst. You're not being loving. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, nothing can be crueler than the tenderness which consigns another to his sin. Conversely, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. The purpose of Christ's command to close the kingdom of heaven through biblical church discipline is love. Again, the, the, the power behind such discipline is what we just talked about a moment ago, that Christ is there with his church as they make these pronouncements according to his word. And then the pattern or, or procedure for this church discipline is what's laid out for us in Matthew 18. At first, when a brother or sister sins against us, we go to them privately in a spirit of gentleness. Hopefully, we either win them over or, or realize that we were mistaken. If that doesn't happen, they will not listen. Then it says we take one or two with us to fulfill that, that judicial principle of two or three witnesses. And, and if even after that they will not listen, then we tell it to the church by which is meant the uh, ordained officers of the church, the elders who, who are set apart for that purpose, who then are likewise to admonish them. And if they will not listen, then the gates of heaven to them are closed as they're removed or excommunicated from the church, which is not to be taken lightly, but repeated admonitions should first be made. Yet eventually, out of love for them, out of love for Christ, out of love for the rest of his sheep, and out of love for the world around us, we must make clear that they are outside the kingdom. This is a task that is is given to the whole church. It's, it's given to all of us. Notice the, the elders are not to be brought in right away. And yet, at the same time, it's a task that is given especially to the elders who must be diligent in doing this work. It is, many have said, the fading mark of the church, and that must not be so. But, but even as we talked about a boss or an employer entrusting you with keys and, and giving you power and responsibility, so the elders of the church must use the keys, both to close and also to open. So we'll talk about last the power of the keys to open the kingdom of heaven. I realize this is a slightly different order than what we 
we have here in Lord's Day 31, but it I think follows the order that, that Christ himself speaks of, but it also allows us to end on the positive note of the proclamation of the gospel and the opening of the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about how Christ does not only give ordained pastors and elders the um, authority to, to refuse access, but also to grant it. Uh, he doesn't just uh, give them authority to, to shut the door, but, but also to open it. Remember, that's what God said to Eliakim in Isaiah 22. He shall open and none shall shut. He's, he's given real power by which access into God's presence in his temple might be opened. Likewise, the apostles and now the ordained elders and ministers of Christ's new temple, the church, are, are given that same authority. It refers to a couple of things. It refers to when church discipline works, how they have the power to proclaim Christ's pardon and say, you have repented and therefore are restored. Question 85, when such persons promise and demonstrate genuine reform, they're received again as members of Christ and of his church. The Westminster Confession, chapter 30 says that the officers have power to retain and to remit sins, to shut the kingdom of heaven to the impenitent, but to open it to penitent or repentant sinners, absolving from church censure, that is, lifting church discipline. It's a beautiful thing. That's that's the goal. That by the word of the gospel, Christ's ambassadors would be able to say to those who were otherwise to be treated as Gentiles and tax collectors that by faith and repentance, Christ has opened the doors even to them. Just as, as Christ does throughout Matthew's gospel, opening the doors of the kingdom to tax collectors and to Gentiles. This is the goal that the word of the gospel would be proclaimed and received with faith and repentance so that access into God's presence might be granted membership in the visible church belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And this is not only for those who are absolved of church discipline, but in Matthew 16, as well as in John 20, when Jesus speaks of opening the kingdom of heaven, this is not limited to the lifting of church discipline, but this refers to every time the promise of the gospel goes forth. Our catechism says, proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the promise of the gospel in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. That's the wonderful gospel promise that Christ gives ministers of the gospel the privilege of proclaiming. And he gives the elders of his church the task of, of overseeing the purity of that word and doctrine to make sure that gospel is being proclaimed. And the preaching of the word the assurance of of pardon, the wonderful news that God, because of Christ's merit, that is, because of his perfect obedience in our place and then his perfect sacrifice on the cross, where he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of that and that alone, God truly forgives all our sins. That's the gospel that Christ, who gives the keys to his church, tasks them with proclaiming. 
The gates of heaven are opened. Access into God's temple is granted to all who believe that God, because of the one sacrifice of Christ, truly forgives all your sins. That's the gospel that I have the privilege of proclaiming to you this afternoon. It's the gospel that we heard this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's the gospel that, that we hear every week of the assurance of pardon. That's the gospel that we see in baptism. We, we taste and touch and smell in the Lord's Supper. That's the gospel that I've been tasked with proclaiming to you from Genesis to Revelation. The elders have been tasked with making sure that gospel goes forth. Your task as members of the church is to hear and accept that gospel in true faith week after week, as often as it's proclaimed, believing that God, because of Christ's merit and his alone, has absolved you of your sin and opened wide the gates of heaven to bring you in to his eternal presence. Doesn't matter what sin you have committed. Sermon of Elkamp has said, when a, a person is, is guilty of murder or, or adultery, but kneeling at the, the bleeding feet of Christ crucified, cries out, wash me, Savior, or I die. It is the church's sacred duty and blessed privilege to receive him with open arms into its membership and to unlock for him the gates of heaven. This is the blessed privilege that Christ gave to his church when he entrusted to them the keys, and he calls you and I to believe it, to rejoice in it, to make sure that we are always a church who makes this proclamation our theme, the Christ by whom sins are forgiven and apart from whom the kingdom of heaven is shut. God, give each one of us grace to believe on Christ to submit to to the elders to whom he has entrusted the keys to faithfully practice church discipline, all of us, and to faithfully proclaim and receive this gospel of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, that whoever believes this good news will be freed of his sin and saved. We thank you that Jesus desires his church to proclaim this way of salvation even to warn those who are not living in accordance with this message that the wrath of God rests upon them. Lord, we thank you that he entrusts his authority to the officers whom he lovingly supplies his church. We pray that we as your people would not take that lightly, nor would the elders take lightly this responsibility both seeing to it that the kingdom of heaven is opened through the faithful proclamation of the gospel and also closed through loving church discipline. I pray that we would be a church that faithfully practices this, both these first and third marks of the church in acting on earth what you declare in heaven. Help us to be faithful in doing this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.